everyone, and welcome to the No Capes Needed podcast, the official podcast of the Women's Health Collaborative. My name is Faye Kai, and I will be your host today. With me today, I have Dr. Dineo Cabelle. She is the Mitchell and Elaine Yanau Professor and Chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. So thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Cabelle. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, So Dr. Nibali, what we've been doing on this podcast is we've been exploring the backgrounds of some leaders in women's healthcare like yourself. So for example, we've spoken with Dr. Elevitz, who's kind of talked to us about her path to where she is now, and also just asking her some questions about what she feels is some of the pressing issues in women's health today. So kind of starting off today, I would love to ask you about how you became interested in women's health and basically the path that you took to get to where you are today. Well, thank you. Um, And again, thank you for having me on this podcast. Uh, Well, my road to being a gynecologic oncologist was not direct. When I was a little girl, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And then in, um, because my father was a scientist and I used to sit underneath his desk and read biological textbooks, uh, mostly because of the pictures. And I just was really fascinated by biology. But when I was in middle school, I was dissuaded from pursuing science and um, actually was told that I had no aptitude for science whatsoever. I was a chemistry teacher. So in high school, I I became much more interested in literature, English, political science. And by the time I got to college, um, I was a political science minor and was going to do something like English, uh, but uh, got very much involved in lots of healthcare movements. So I was in college in the mid-1980s in New York City at Columbia University. At that time, this was... Uh, the beginning of the HIV AIDS crisis, it was the middle of the crack epidemic. There were lots of things going on at that time. And I became involved with the Black Women's Health Project. And that uh, was a grassroots movement to really um, uh, talk about healthcare from a community perspective. And from being involved with that group, I initially was going to think about being a midwife. And one of the women I met Um, sort of talked about the fact that she had wanted to go to medical school, but never had a chance. And that uh, if I had a chance to go to medical school, I can go to medical school and, um, uh, you know, carry my midwife sensibilities with me into medicine. So about halfway through college, I, I changed my mind about what I wanted to do as a career and returned to my thoughts of becoming a doctor. Um, A year after college, I ended up working in the uh, Columbia College Student Health Services and really doing a lot of work with students to prevent sexually transmitted diseases and to to do some HIV prevention. Again, this was 1989 to 1990. So um, we worked a lot with uh, other community groups like ACT UP, a gay rights group, um, and it was just a really powerful point in my life, looking at how community activists could change the course of medicine. And what's really interesting to me is that we still have some of the same players, Dr. Fauci. So I recall when um, activists were, you know, protesting outside of Dr. Fauci's office in DC, 
and uh, and now we have the same issue where um, we have this gap between medicine and science in the community. So when I got to medical school, again, this was in the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic and patients of mine were dying um, alone in New York City hospitals because their families had rejected them because of who they were as gay men. And that really has stuck, to, stuck with me throughout my career. Um, and again, we're repeating history where some people are in hospitals by themselves alone. Uh, but anyway, in medical school, I became interested in surgery and, um, and uh, in GYN oncology because uh, I could take care of women surgically, but also there was continuity of care medically because we were given chemotherapy. And then I became interested in just following and working with women on their journey. So, so it was sort of a circuitous route to GYN oncology. I did my um, residency training at Cornell, which is where I met Dr. Elvitz, and we were residents together. And I did my um, GYN Ecology Fellowship at Einstein, and that year was 1998, and we were in the middle of everybody, the ma major labs were working on the Human Genome Project, and I landed in a lab that was part of um, sequencing uh, genes, and I became very interested in research. So I'm a late bloomer, <laughs> in basic science. So um, uh, that's how I kind of stumbled upon becoming a physician scientist. It's a long-winded story to say that these different influences have really affected my career decision, and it was not a straight path. I mean, that's a fascinating story. And, you know, one of the reasons that I like doing this podcast is I love to hear about how people have kind of gotten to where they are. And so thank you for sharing that story with us. Dr. Cabelli, I definitely want to talk to you about research, but I wanted to go back to something that you talked a little bit about at the beginning of your story, which is when your chemistry teacher told you that you had no scientific aptitude. And, you know, I think something that we face as women, and particularly, you know, I think women of color face this, is obstacles in their path to get to medicine, to get to STEM careers and degrees, etc. And I wanted to ask you a little bit, you know, if you have experienced that. I mean, obviously, it sounds like from very early on, you did experience that. But you know, do you feel like that is something that is still a big issue for women and women of color today? And how and how do you feel that this could change? Well, it has to change. I feel it has to change. A um, couple of things that come to mind immediately. It's it's still happening to this very day. I mean, I will get a grant review back that um, will say that, you know, they're concerned about my productivity as a scientist. I mean, really, I, I mean, you still, I still face those same critiques to this day. Interestingly, I was talking to a friend this morning, I, I received a grant critique that had criticized the fact that I quote unquote moved so much in my career. Well, every move that I've made in my career has been for a promotion and has been with better resources and has improved my research. I don't know if a similar pathed white man in my position would have received that same critique. Absolutely. I think they would have looked at it and said, wow, she was recruited here, here, and here, and this has boosted her career. Uh, the comment was that they were concerned about my stability 
Okay. I had just been appointed chair of the Department of OBGYN at WashU, and the critique was that they were concerned about my stability. So it occurs to this very day. The reason it's so important for me to participate in the Women's Health Collaborative and to speak about these things is because, you know, it's happened all along the way. And so what I talk to people about is when you get in a position to be a mentor or a sponsor, you've got to do it. So the reason I took this position is because one of the reasons is because it's an opportunity to be the sponsor that I never had. So I've had people who've mentored me. I've had people who like me. Oh, they think I'm a nice person. But it's not very common in my career where I've had a sponsor. I've had a lot of tormentors and just and, and just haters and detractors. And, um, and it doesn't stop. It doesn't end once you get to the next position. Uh, but I feel like it's muscle memory for me. I've had practice at this. And I want to transmit to the next generation that you develop certain muscles to be able to stand up for yourself, but more importantly, to stand up for other people, to actually be at the table or in the room. And just by your presence, maybe somebody will not say the inappropriate thing. Or if they do, then you can question them and ask if that's what they really meant or provide a completely different perspective in that room. So I'm clearly very passionate about this because it doesn't stop and it hasn't stopped. And in fact, I think it's going to get a little bit worse because many of us are speaking up all at once. And that makes people uncomfortable. And people who are used to the comfortable way of things are getting upset. But I I really would hope that people wouldn't have to go through all the different things that I went through. And if I can make it a little bit easier for the next generation, I'm going to do what I can. I think that is very encouraging to hear that there are people who are well-established in your in their career, like yourself, Dr. Kabeli, who are willing to stand up for um, people who are early in their career or coming through their training. I think that's very encouraging. And absolutely, I do feel like that is one of the best things about the Women's Health Collaborative. You spoke about mentors and sponsors before. Um, And I wanted to ask you, could you tell us a little bit about one of your best mentors or potentially what makes a great mentor? Well, I mean, I think that um, it's so interesting, my views on this and how my view of what being a mentor, a coach, and a sponsor has changed throughout my career. So I've had lots of mentors. I've had people where I've been in their lab And they've really helped me with resources and ideas and sort of provided me with some sort of career guidance or encouraged me in a certain kind of way. Or if I've asked for help, they've provided it. And to me, that's a pretty good mentor. Um, A a coach is somebody who sort of um, demonstrates something and then uh, kind of uh, watches me do it. So I, I think I've had good surgical coaches, people who have helped me in the operating room, for instance, um, acquire a particular skill. Um, sponsorship is something that I'm, I'm much more interested in. So I think that the idea, first of all, is that the best sponsor is the person that you haven't asked to sponsor you for. So, so the best example of sponsorship is if there is an opportunity that comes up. A person calls you and says, Faye, this is a fabulous opportunity. 
when I saw this email to me, I thought of you. I really think that you're an ideal person to apply for this. That's something that's really rare. And it's only started to happen for me at this later point in my career. And I think back and I think, oh my God, how much easier would my path have been if a few more people had just cleared the way a little bit more? And, um, and I'm not saying you, you're given something that you didn't work for. I'm saying that there's so many obstacles in academic medicine, um, in, uh, in academia in general, that there, there is certainly a hidden curriculum where certain people are given information that's not common knowledge of how things are done. How things are done is mm -hmm. somebody will recommend one of their people to apply for something. And the people on that committee know the somebody who had, you know, put your name in the hat. And you really don't know that these conversations are happening. <laughs> so, um, so my thought is I'd like to find ways to better formalize these relationships and to ensure that people coming up put themselves in positions to be sponsored. So uh, to be a sponsoree, to be the beneficiary of this, I don't know if that's a word, mm -hmm. it's not a word, but um, <laughs> Uh, you know, you, you, it's important to make yourself available for these opportunities. And I think that uh, putting yourself out there as a person who is interested in trying new things or who desires the next step in promotion or who is interested in a certain path, um, yeah, then you're available for these opportunities. Um, the biggest issue I have is a lot of people don't know these opportunities are available. And so, um, the idea is when we're in positions where we can sponsor people, we need to be able to do it. And I think you brought up a good point about there's this hidden curriculum of people putting someone's name in the hat, for example, for a position, et cetera. And I think that brings up one issue, which is I think transparency of how people are hired, of how people get positions in academia. Um, now as, as chair, how do you feel like you could improve on that? Well, I mean, I think that a lot of things um, uh, need to be made apparent as far as, um, let me give you a good example. I, I, um, think it is important that people are, are really aware of the different tracks that exist within academia. So I received an email the other day about somebody at another institution I'm mentoring and um, she's going up for promotion. And so I wanted to look, review her CV. And I started looking at it. And the first thought I had was, this is not in the right format. Wait a minute. And then I quickly emailed her back and I said, listen, um, have you looked at your faculty manual, <laughs> right? I mean, how many people have read the faculty manual of where they work? That faculty manual actually exists and it's available for you, it's on, online. But, um, so that's, it's not hidden, it's transparent, but how many people read it and look at it and understand what track is available to you? The other question that I had is, you know, 
lots of clinical departments in the United States no longer offer tenure. So if you're trying to go for tenure in an institution where the clinical department doesn't offer it, then that's an issue that you need to really be aware of early on. Lots of people don't know this, and I had no clue about this when early, when I was for an assistant professor at a couple of the institutions I, I, I worked. I had no idea until it was time for me to prepare for promotion, and I was told that there's no way I could be on a tenure track because that was not an option for that department. So that's just one small example of making that information <clears throat> readily available. So as chair, you know, part of our professional development is to ensure that I'm meeting with individual faculty to see what their goals are, but actually at certain, and, and making sure that I have a robust um, promotion and tenure, tenure committee internally within the department, and then making sure that we're educating faculty on a regular basis as to what tracks are available and what that means to them and uh, really matching the track with the person's goals. Not everybody needs to be on a tenure track or should be. There are options available, but if you don't even know what exists, I think that that's, um, that's, that's part of the opaqueness of, of academia. And actually the information is there. It's just, you know, where do you find it? And are people actually talking about it? Right, absolutely. I think those are all good points in terms of just figuring out one, I think what people want in their careers, right? And then kind of figuring out how to get a position that matches what they want. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to actually switch gears a little bit, if that's okay, Dr. Pelly, and ask you now about your research because I, I, it is something that I wanted to talk to you about. So you said that you had um, gotten interested in research because um, you had been involved with the lab when they had been developing uh, the Human Genome Project. And so I, I wanted to first ask you about, you know, how that has shaped what your interests are in research today. And if you have any advice for whether it's medical students, residents, fellows, even early career attendings, um, how they could get involved in research or how do they figure out what they're interested in? So like I said, I am a late bloomer. I did, I did not um, mention that, yes, I did some bench research um, when I was, oh my gosh, when I was in medical school between first and second year of medical school, which led to the first paper my name was on that I contributed to. I was so excited. It was Dr. Michelle Ferran, and I would count him as a mentor. He was always taking students. This is one of those NIH summer research programs. And he was so generous and so kind to include me on this paper. Um, he worked on um, uh, the, the effects of stress on um, the, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis or, or axis um, or ovarian axis as well, and uh, cortisol and its effects on ovulation. And so it was really interesting basic science work, um, but he worked with rhesus monkeys and I was terrible in the animal lab. So he then pulled me out to work at the bench and I was terrible with pipettes and they just had to really kind of sit with me and he had assigned special people to me. So I really, really <laughs> just did not, I, you know, I was not, that was not something that I was naturally gifted at, but in um, fellowship, I interviewed in different labs and Raju Kuchulapati's lab was the lab um, uh, doing the human genome sequencing. 
And a couple of people in that lab, um, I, I thought it was really interesting because not just that, they also were developing the first microarrays where you could look at multiple genes at one time. That fascinated me because I, I was thinking about how I could analyze ovarian uh, cancer using this method to look at molecular targets for therapy. And so a secondary mentor was Susan Horowitz at, at Einstein, who had actually um, discovered uh, the role of Taxol uh, and its um, basic um, um, ability to, um, to be used as an ovarian cancer drug. And, um, and I think her lab is still up and going and still running. So, um, so I had this project where I was looking at a, a, a drug that acted very similar to Taxol called Epothlone B and whether um, in treated versus untreated cells, we performed microarray experiments. And then I validated my experiments with um, looking at uh, um, uh, RT-PCR to validate the genes that changed. And I just remember um, that I, I learned how to pipette. I learned how to do northern blots and western blots and microarrays and, and analyze the data. And it was fascinating. And so the questions that I, I've been asking since my fellowship are the same questions. When we look under the microscope at ovarian cancer, the histology can look identical between patients, but we know that the response to therapy differs. And I'm really interested in um, the molecular responses uh, that cause chemotherapy resistance. And that's just been the basic question I've asked since fellowship. Um, and then serendipity, Dr. Kuchilapati left Einstein and I had to scramble for a different mentor. And I ended up in Len Augenlich's lab and it was a big colon cancer lab. And they were using microarrays as well in that lab, but they were also looking at butyrate, which is a short chain fatty acid that resides in the gut. That's a natural histone deacetylase inhibitor. And, um, and when you treat colon cancer cells with an HDAC inhibitor, you were able to induce apoptosis or cell death. So one of the PhDs with a small lab in this big group I think my lab looked like a closet. I mean, it was a tiny little lab in this big group. <laughs> and um, John Maria Dawson, he is a PhD uh, colon cancer scientist now in Australia. And he said, well, you know, we have Saha and butyrate. Why don't you see if these do anything to your ovarian cancer cells? And, and interestingly enough, uh, these same um, agents, small molecule inhibitors, caused apoptosis. And so I started studying these epigenetic drugs. And then when I was at Meharry Medical College, fast forward many years later, I had an opportunity to, um, to apply to be um, a visiting professor, a visiting scientist at the Broad Institute at, of MIT and Harvard. And I got to work in Stuart Schreiber's lab. Well, Stuart Schreiber had discovered the early HDAC inhibitors, the small molecule inhibitors. Um, and um, so I, I was able to do um, uh, some studies in Stuart Schreiber's lab looking at, at a variety of small molecule inhibitors uh, of histone deacetylases. And I've continued that work. Um, fast forward a decade later, we're combining HDAC inhibitor with PARP inhibitors. It's another type of drug 
that um, is used to treat ovarian cancer. And we now have a clinical trial that's open based on this basic science research that, uh, you know, that covers a couple of decades. So it's still something I'm very interested in. And, um, and it's just funny to me that, you know, I started out in medical school, you know, barely knowing what a pipette was. So I think it's very important um, to uh, foster an interest in people who have any inkling of an interest and not discourage people too soon. Now, the caveat to that is, I also think that it's okay if it doesn't work out. And, you know, I, I, I sometimes see people pushing and pushing and pushing when it's really, it, it's not a good fit. You know, you don't have to be in a lab to be a brilliant scientist. <laughs> there's, there's a huge range of research that we urgently need from community-based participatory research to bioinformatics, big data. I mean, you don't have to be in a lab to be a true scientist. And so the fun part of this new job that I have is I get to hear about all kinds of science and find ways to support it. That's excellent. Um, thank you again for telling us about your your path through research. I think it's, again, fascinating to just hear how people get involved in their research. I think especially for people who are listening to the podcast like myself, it research and, you know, looking at the CVs of people like yourself, Dr. Cabelli, it seems almost like how could you possibly ever get to that point of publishing multiple papers on certain things? Because, you know, it's it seems like, um, at, at least to me, that this all kind of happened in a very short time period and that like you definitely knew exactly what you wanted going into medical school. But it, it's good to hear, I think, and it's encouraging to hear that, you know, things take time and that there's there's a need to foster research interest. And it's not something that, you know, I, I kind of had this idea that there are people like Dr. Fauci who are like, you know, born with a pipel in their hand or something like that, right? Um, <laughs> so that is definitely good to hear. Um, and I think in, you know, the last few minutes of this podcast, I just wanted to turn the subject matter to some lighter things, which is, um, I just wanted to ask, you know, what are some things that you do to try and ground yourself to make it so that you feel like, you know, this has been a very stressful day, um, but I'm going to do something for myself and take time for myself. What are some things that you do to oh decompress? <laughs> well, I, when I can, I run. I'm a slow runner. I try to be a fast runner, but I am a slow runner. Um, and, um, and I live right across from this beautiful park, Forest Park in St. Louis. And it's just wonderful to just get out and, and run. Um, and the thing that I like about living in the cities that I've lived in, they've had these sort of central parks, like Central Park in New York, where mm -hmm. uh, people really get out there as families and individuals to enjoy public spaces. And that really that that makes me feel good, whether I'm listening to music or just walking in silence or running. Um, that really connects me with other people, even though I don't know them and I don't really want to talk to them. I like to see that there are groups of people out enjoying these public spaces. Um, I, I journal when I can. I love reading, um, except I just can't get into reading when I'm really focused on working because I'll try to devour a book in a night. Do you know what I mean? Like I have to yes. be very careful with my <laughs> reading. I have to read when I'm on vacation or when I have time off. Um, I What's just, your most um, recent? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. 
Oh, the most recent book that I read, well, you know, I've had a lot of just stuff that I've had to deal with. So I actually returned to Joan Didion, amazing writer who writes about tragic uh, tragedies in her family. Her, her, her husband has a heart attack while their daughter is in an ICU uh, intubated, um, recovering from sepsis. And so she, it's a memoir. And yeah, I'm like, why am I reading this book in the middle of all this? We're dealing with COVID. And right. like, you know, there, there's just been a lot of personal family tragedies that I've been dealing with. And, and so surprisingly enough, that book was very, very helpful. So, so that's a recent book. Um, and I love watching sports. Um, so I've been watching the French Open. I'm a big a fan of tennis. And just, you know, what grounds me mostly is probably my, my husband and, um, and our son. I mean, it's just there, they bring a lot of joy to my life. And, and especially my husband sort of keeps me, you know, just kind of centered and, and reminds me who I am, why I'm doing what I'm doing, and doesn't let me to get too far ahead of myself. Like I'll, I'll get really kind of hyper or, or, or try to develop imposter syndrome or something and he'll he'll just remind me everything that I've been through and that um, I'm where I'm supposed to be which is really 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 helpful actually he said that to me this morning he was like you're where you're supposed to be you know I'm like oh thank you honey that's great because yeah. <laughs> I was running around in a circle I was like late for work and I'm like oh my god I can't even handle this and he's like, no you're you're where you're supposed to be well, thank you very much, Dr. Kimberly, for coming onto the podcast and um, talking to me and allowing our listeners to just kind of hear a little bit about your life and what you've been through. I think it's so helpful for people who are coming up in the women's health um, fields to be able to access um, people like yourself and hear about their stories. Um, and I think one of the biggest things, and I've already probably already said this, is just hearing that, you know, the people who, like yourself, where you are today, that it takes time to get there and that, um, you know, when things seem inaccessible to us, um, that there are people like yourself who I think have been through a lot and also are willing to be part of something like the Women's Health Collaborative to help um, people like myself who are just starting out in their careers. So thank you very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And I do hope it's helpful to somebody. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, and listeners, thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and go onto your favorite podcatcher, whether it's Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online at thewomenshealthcollaborative.org. Um, and you can also find us on Twitter at womenshc. 